the project I got to do was like on constraints and leverage on a project you're working on. And it was like right in my wheelhouse. I was like, oh man, the constraints on my crowdfunded solar financing thing are like infinite. The point was like, what happens if you can blow one of those constraints out of the water by like getting financing or people or whatever. And my world just makes it worse. Mm. If you try to make it bigger, more money or whatever. And Seth, which had nothing to do with him, but he asked me, is it worth it? And like, I read that sentence and like everywhere in my body was just like, no. And what I got to realize then is I wasn't doing that on purpose. And I'd never been giving myself credit for that choice because what I was doing instead is what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to be with my daughter. I wanted to support my wife and like the company as she was growing. And because I wasn't saving the world, I wasn't giving myself credit for having made those decisions. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Hope you guys are having a great day today. A little bit about our guest today. After spending 10 years in the aerospace industry, technology startup, and renewable energy industries, Robert Metcalf found his path to changing the world through skincare. Owner and COO of family-owned luxury skin company, May Lindstrom Skin. We had a great talk about Rob's background, what he went through in his industry, and how he's made the pivot out of there and... Him and his wife are involved in a very highly successful boutique skincare company. Rob's a great guy, and uh, we had a lot of fun in this conversation. So super grateful to connect with him. And if you guys get value out of this, leave us a review. And if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button on Apple to stay on top of everything. Rob Metcalf coming right up. Rob, what's up, my man? Thanks for joining us today. How are you, brother? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Lance. Yeah. Absolutely, man. And uh, again, getting into the good juicy stuff and had, I was like, all right, put a pause. Time to, uh, <laughs> time to hit record. Let's not miss anything. Lately, dude, what I've been doing to kick things off is I kind of just like to get everybody's perspective on where they're at right now with everything and crazy time in the world. And I feel like it's almost, it's a necessity to kind of address it at least, you know, and whatever outlook you have, you know, I'm, I'm always, everybody's outlook is different. So how are things going for you right now, man? Yeah, it would be, it would be weird to not address it on yeah. the university of adversity. podcast. Yeah. It's, like, yeah, it's a it's like it's the a, world adversity happening right now. How are you not addressing it? Right? Yeah. There's this book called a beautiful constraint that without even reading it, the title alone, I feel like conveys the message of that. Like constraints can be beautiful. And I'm grateful that the circumstances of my life allow that to feel true in these circumstances though actually probably a moment before I jumped on here one of my current when the students I'm coaching kind of hadn't done her work from yesterday so I was just following up and her effectively her, her mom's best friend had just passed like yesterday so I'm just sort of coming off of like learning that and holding space with her about that and so yeah the circumstances my own life are fine I run a skincare company with my wife and so those that's been challenging and interesting. <laughs> like I'm a systems person. And so it was the, the first month was interesting because every week I would get to redesign our company. 
we actually make stuff. <laughs> we actually ship it. And so really? we're a little different than most skincare companies because most skincare companies are, are marketing companies and they have a lab that makes the product and they have a fulfillment company that ships it. And uh, we don't do any, we, we do that part too. That's probably our core competency is, is making things wow. um, beautifully and sending them to people. And so, so I've had to kind of skirt the, or a manufacturer of healthcare related products is the stance that I've taken. And so before it was sort of the edict here in California, we'd already restructured our, what it meant to make product and the space that our team had and how many people we would even bring in to do it and all physical distancing and cleanliness protocols and all of that. And it was interesting too, to look at my team and I'm grateful that our team, we have about 30 employees and half of them are already kind of either already remote or work from a computer. So it was pretty easy to say, all right, well, you know, the half of you work from home, but then the other half, again, I'm like really grateful that we have a small team. So I know all of them and it's like, okay, so like the four of you have kids and LA Unified hasn't closed their school yet, but they're going to. So like, just stay home with your kid. Like we've got you. And then like, oh, this woman takes the bus. So like, that's not safe. And so we were able to do almost like a, a quarantine continuity check with each of our employees and be like, can you be safe at home? Can you get here safely? And can we keep you safe here? And if the answer was yes to all of those, then you might be allowed to come to work. <laughs> and if not, it's like, cool, we got you, like, stay home. We'll pay you, keep you healthcare and get you groceries. And, you know, we'll see, uh, we'll see you later um, <laughs> when we're allowed to see you again. And so, yeah, and we we got to make some decisions that were things that we would think about <laughs> in the past. And we have a wholesale part of our business, right? And in the beginning days, like that was, you know, probably 80% of our business. But as we've grown over the last, I guess it's eight years, um, wow. you know, we're primarily direct to consumer now. We're like probably, or last year, we were probably 60% e-commerce and then 40% and like kind of high-end retailers and you know, but also small boutiques and things like that. And so a lot of them just closed, mm. <laughs> you know, or, or like, Crazy, or, or they were also Crazy. having to like, you know, the Neiman Marcuses and stuff of the world who were already like going out of business anyways, like they just closed all their stores. And, and so the, the scrappier, smaller companies, it was a hard decision to be like, well, do we keep, like, I have to make someone come to work and make product to be able to send it to them. <laughs> And it's like, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Like, I'm not going to yeah. put my team at risk. And it's, and it's hard because there's like a downstream effect of like, and so we, you know, I guess two months ago, probably we decided, okay, well, we're just not going to fulfill our wholesale orders anymore. Hmm. And that was a philosophical thing that my wife would talk about, like over the years, like, oh, what would, what if we just didn't have wholesale anymore? You know, and as the financial steward, I'd go, well, I think we need those millions of dollars to pay everyone do all the stuff and so it's been interesting to just sort of have have an external event like have us think about that decision and go well regardless of like whether we need that revenue like i'm not going to put people's lives at risk for that revenue mm. and so and then the, the silver lining of that is as their wholesale partners have either continued operations and sold out of our product or not, or not had operations, like those customers of our products still exist. Mm. So, so luckily for us, they've just come bought them from us. And so 
we're almost a little too busy. I mean, like we're more busy than I would like us to be, to be honest. And so it's, um, so it's a good, yeah. it's a good problem, but I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't wish this on the planet for me to like have that, that perk, but I'm, I'm definitely grateful that it's like what I built the company for is to do is to be a tool for uh, taking care of people. And so that yeah. in this time when people need to be taken care of that, like we have resources to help people feel safe, even if it's, you know, my ability to make that true is very limited. Yeah. Like I can't stop people from getting sick which is a hard thing for me as a leader. Cause it's like, I would really like that, <laughs> that a power. Of, uh, a lot of real leaders are being exposed in this good and bad, you know, like you can really see the, the like stuff like that, man is huge. People remember that stuff. What, what, how did you show up when this shit hit the fan? Right. Right. A lot of these like CEOs, a lot of these people, the people looking after their, their team, their crew, man, that's never going to be forgotten. Yeah, but but I also I, it's there's just so much shooting going around on like what people think is the right answer, yeah, and it's just like I don't know, man. Anyone who thinks yeah. they know the right way to deal with this is it's uh, overly confident. Mm. <laughs> totally, my, because you don't know how long it's going to go, and right. there wasn't this lesson in in business school or anywhere like how to prepare for a pandemic in your business. Right. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, I've, I've been questioning my thinking a lot where it's like, okay, like, do I feel good about how things are going because of these circumstances? Like, if, if I operate under the assumption that you know, this is a novel virus, there's no vaccine, it's highly contagious, at some point, I'm going to get it. Mm. And you're going to get it. I think I already right? did. Or, right, you, maybe you After did. After Tulum, <laughs> I swear I got it, bro. I was fucking almost dying, coughing, like a chain smoker. Oh, well, fingers crossed yeah. that and it and that you, you know, can't get it again. Um, yeah. yeah, there's there's a, a thread of like remembering in early March where like a pocket of us got sick and it's like, oh, was that it? And, you know, being hopeful that we had. But just that the, the, the rest of that thought experiment was like, oh, well, what how will I feel when someone on my team gets sick? Like, will it be different if it's a work from home person or a come into work person? And like, will it be different when the fifth person person gets sick or if someone dies, you know, like, are these still going to feel like the right decisions? And mm. I do not know that I have the answer to that, but, um, but I was at least aware enough of my, <laughs> that my, my feeling about things might be very circumstance based. And so there is, yeah, man, there was just no warning. Right. It was just like, hey, <laughs> there wasn't like, so guys, in three days, three to five days, things are going to shut down. It was literally like, all right, we're done. That's right. It. Yeah. And like the real scrappy part of me, like we started this in our house. And so I was like, all right, well, if I'm not allowed to leave, like I'll just come and get all the product and take it to my house and I'll ship it. Yeah. And it was like, oh, well, that's one solution. And then it turned out like we have enough team now where there's like three or four other people who had the same thought. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. oh that's cool that like, I don't have to be the only, like I'm not the only person who can be a resource and like want to help e each other. And so, um, so that's been a big learning of mine as a, as our company's grown that um, like I have a desire to be important yeah. and to be necessary and to know that I don't have to be the only, the only <laughs> that I'm not alone is yeah. like the big learning. Mm. Cause I definitely, there's a, a lone wolf sort of archetype to me that has been a sort of focused. Why is that? What is that? Where does that come from? 
I think the root of that is probably from my dad was an addict. And so being sober, he was sober for like a, a, a portion of my childhood. And I like look exactly like him. I sound like him. It was like, I look like my dad. My sister looks like my mom. You know, it's like, you're me was the learning yeah. from my dad. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm not, yeah. it took, but it took me like 30, you know, I'm, I'm turning 40 this year and it probably took 30 years to be like, well, there's you in me for sure, but I am not you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so being sober was like this huge, huge thing to me or like from him to me, like you're an addict, you, it's genetic, like you mm-hmm. can't do this. And so, um, yeah, I didn't drink until I was 30. Um, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it just, was just because I'm like, you, you resisted his behavior so much or. Yeah. Or it's just like, and, and he, he was sober for like my sort of teen years and stuff. And so it was just already like going to, you know, parties and stuff. It was just like, not, it was just a decision that I never had to undo. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't drink. Yeah. It's just like, it's just a thing I don't do. And so it wasn't a big deal to me because socially I didn't, need it i could just show up and be comfortable and talk to people or whatever but yeah it 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 ended up showing up in or like you know in the therapy sense of um yeah not really knowing what i could count on from him and his dad had died when he was like 15 or 16 and that's when he became like pretty like heavily just addicted to things in general Mm -hmm. and so emotionally he kind of he was a 16 year old Mm. And so, which is awesome until you're 16. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I yeah. guess I'm the grown up now. <laughs> and oh, so, yeah. so true. Yeah. So, like, I stopped looking to my dad as a source of like anything uh, pretty early. And so, luckily for me, through those same genetics, I had some like massive brain power for math and like things that are very, there's, positive incentives to being really good at <laughs> and so yeah. like i just was a perfectionist was my thing or it's just like i don't even really know where it came from like i always did all my homework it was also it was easy for me to do but like it never occurred to me to not do it mm. like it never and so like i went through high school and was like played sports and skateboarded and did all this sort of i was like pretty competitive and and physical things but um it was partly a way to like hide that i was like the the whiz the number one like in the class like kind of no one knew that i was the valedictorian in my high school until we were done they're like do you know you're number one student i'm like yeah i have been for for four years or whatever there was one a buddy of mine was like more more visually clearly like the nerd actually i i I had a higher gpa than him because he got a b in pe Which is kind of fucked Man, up. And I hated guys like you that were good looking <laughs> studs, but they're so good at school too. It was like either one or the other. Well, I'm short. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm I'm five six. So I've got oh, that, that bit of um you know, keep me in my my spot. Um yeah, like if I was yeah, it's like hanging out with Kyle Kingsbury. It's like, wow, all right. That you got a lot of you could be a huge asshole. I'm glad you're not. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I had a strict I had a pretty strong like perfectionist streak that I don't really know when I unlearned that, but I went to a super intense engineering school or like science school. And I think that might've done it where like I got there in the first week, it was like, Oh, I am not smart. (laughs) 
yeah. Like compared people, to these people, people like I'm next level smart there. Huh? Yeah. It's like, I'm not getting A's anymore. That's for sure. And, um, and that was pretty true and consistent. And so there was sort of four years of like feeling real dumb. Um, and so it was awesome to leave there and then to go back into the sort of real world again and go, Oh no, I am good at stuff. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'm glad. But yeah, the, uh, the thing, the things that I picked up from my childhood, from my dad, was like kind of being good at stuff and then like not being poor. I was like really afraid of being poor, but that was the extent of the goal. <laughs> it's like, don't be poor. And it was like, well, were you guys poor growing up? No, we we're fine. But like, it was like normal, like middle class. Yeah. Yeah. Grew up in Northern California. Like, you know, my mom, like it was funny cause my mom actually, she sold Jaffa skincare, which is like a, it's kind of like Mary Kay or one of those ones, like you do it from yeah. home. And, and so my very first jobs were in skincare <laughs> and now I run a skincare company, which it was funny to like connect those dots and I would do inventory and stuff for her. But the, uh, but yeah, so there was just a, there was like scholastic achievement and like sort of being, I don't know, impressive was mm. important. And like the, uh, and I wanted to kind of change the world. That's like what it felt like I was supposed to, like I was supposed to save the world was my narrative with whatever work that I did because I was like attracted to business. Like I could understand the math and the science of everything, but I liked people and like sold clothes to pay my way through college and stuff. And so so I wasn't the smartest person at my school, but it was like, you might all work for me because like you guys can't talk to people <laughs> or like, you know, someone will have to interpret what you just said and explain it to other, you know, to the world. And so, but yeah, but once, once I kind of got into that school, it sort of checked the box of like, okay, I won't be poor. Oh yeah. Like I'll be employable <laughs> or whatever. I can get a job. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And then it was, I was, I didn't have a specific target anymore because I'd like done it. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, uh, like when I was thinking about, you know, I'm like a, a white male born in the United States. It's like the, the adversity that stacked against me is like light <laughs> by some measures, you know? Um, and where most of my adversity was like, uh, self-imposed. Yeah, probably. And so, that can be just as bad, man. That can be just as just as hard as as anything. Sometimes it's the, it's those those are the situations within ourselves that are the hardest ones to get through, man. As I'm learning too. Absolutely, it's like <laughs> crazy you know, when it's an external thing like that. You can just point at it and be like, "It's that, yeah. right? It's that this system is like stacked against me." Or, um, yeah, and when it's your when it's your own limiting, well, that's like yeah, and it's interesting because adversity and constraints, like these are all things that. Um, we make good or bad. Mm. Uh, some of them are just bad, probably. Like the we ones can that always don't, learn a like the ones that don't apply to you and I as like yeah. white guys. Like we, there's yeah. a degree of privilege where it's easy for me to say like, oh, actually, like if I was a black woman, yeah, so, yeah, it just it's a totally different. Thing. Yeah, it's, it's hard to speak. Not, for not other really people. fair. It's hard um, to speak for other people for sure. Yeah. Like. Um, yeah. No. Definitely. So it wasn't that I was like listless or anything after that, but um, I didn't really have a plan. I'm not really like, I'm not that kind of person. I was a little more like serendipitous. Um, and so like through my school, I like through an alum, I kind of got my first job out of school into, I worked in a little, a tiny little aerospace company um, and got to work on really interesting and cool problems that were like way above my pay grade or like my age and experience and stuff. Like I literally didn't know how to do anything. 
and then got to work with a bunch of guys who had probably designed or built like everything that had ever flown super fast. So like all high mock, like wow. the stuff that had gone in space and um, they're all in their six, late sixties and seventies. And I was like 21. Fuck, that must've <laughs> been fascinating being around them and learning from them. It was like, I didn't see them that much because they were all sort of remote employees. Like back when that was hard. Cause like right. they didn't really use computers that much. Like they would fix yeah, us stuff. Crazy. Like they would literally, it was a kind of group of guys where if you told them just like a mission, like, Hey, we need to take this payload and launch it to this orbit. You just tell the six of them that, and they would come back and they'd be like, well, here's the thing that does it. And you're like, okay, wow. thanks. And so that was sort of how my work there started. It was with this, um, just on this project with DARPA, which is, um, the defense defense advanced research projects agency in the U S and they're like a, they helped invent the internet. Like they, they do things that are tactical for the U S. And so they were trying to like be able to launch stuff into space, like using existing airplanes, like fighter jets or something like some existing technology that they could just modify to like more or less launch a, a missile into space mm. <laughs> so that they could <laughs> rapidly destroy things elsewhere in the world, or maybe even just destroy a satellite is probably what they would have tried to do like just launch a rock into space that like hits something and blow it apart. Wow. Um, there must've been some conversations there that would have been just like insanity. Well, the, they didn't really talk about the mission a lot. It <laughs> like was more just like about shit like, that, that would be thrown out there that you wouldn't hear from the average Joe just walking around, you know? Yeah. The stories and stuff from those guys was really cool. And like, I wasn't really an aerospace person. Like I didn't really, I didn't know the difference between an F-15 and an F-16 when I started. And my boss was like, had gone to Caltech too. So he was like super smart and also had gone to the Air Force Academy and was a fighter pilot. So he had just like weird, like nerd Top Gun stories, which were just like a, a trip to get out of like this really geeky, sweet, but really goofy dude. Yeah. And then all of the sort of older guys had all, yeah, I was like literally a kid. And so they, um, that first project, like, a way to make a, a jet engine go faster than it normally likes to is to spray water in the inlet and it cools it off so that it can keep going faster before it melts. Um, and so that was like, that was my job. And the beginning of that project was to like figure out how much water to spray in the inlet of a jet engine, um, which was interesting, but like not, I don't know, it was like not, wow, how'd you do that? And so at the first like presentation to the government, like I had like a little 20 minute pitch on that and they like all got a kick out of the kid. And like, I worked for Armani when I was in college. So I had like my Armani suit and like did my thing and they got a kick out of me. And then in the vehicle we designed for that, like did everything that they had asked us to, but they hadn't put a budget in place and it was like five times more money than they wanted to spend. And so then they added the constraint of like, oh, well, can you make it? for a quarter of the price. And so then it became like actually a much more complicated problem to solve because it wasn't take this thing, get it, <laughs> get yeah. it to here. It was like, tell us what you can do for X dollars. And so it became like a more iterative design. And because I was young, I was like the computer guy, even though I'm not a computer person. And I got to make um, just a giant Excel spreadsheet, honestly, that like, was a trajectory program for the vehicle. And so the guy who did aerodynamics would send me the aerodynamics data and the guy who did engine performance would like send me that, or I would like program it into Excel or something. And then like step-by-step step, I would fly the vehicle and like see if we made it to space or whatever. Um, and so I got to see 
how tweaking every little knob on the vehicle like affected its performance. And so six months into that job, like the next technical thing, there was a technical day and then the program day and I, I presented the entire technical presentation. Wow. And like, and which was a trip because it was just like storytelling. It was like, this is why yeah. it all worked. And so, so I got to do a lot of things like that, that like as a, especially at that age, it was like an incredible opportunity to get to like operate at that level. But like, those are a super tiny company, like super underfunded and we ran out of money and I just had to go get a job somewhere else. And I'd probably learned like retail therapy from my dad and had learned how to like manage credit from my mom. And so I had like massive amounts of credit card debt, like tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt. And I probably made $60,000 a year. And this was in 2003 or four. And I also bought a house. So it was oh, like when wow. you could get a loan if you were alive. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I bought this like um, just this little house in, an, in a, a neighborhood in LA no one had ever heard of and um, decided that I'd become useful because like my knowledge was like very theoretical. And so I like, you know, I renovated the, the house and it, it took a long time. Um, but during that, like I had my mortgage, I had a couple friends lived with me that had no ceiling or floors in my house. And I worked um, for this different little defense contractor and I couldn't really afford my life. And so I started tutoring like in math and physics and stuff so that I could um, afford <laughs> like pay my debt and stuff. And, um, and I ended up doubling my income by like helping kids with their math and homework and stuff. And at one point in that, my, my boss at that point was a huge asshole. And um, he was another alum from my, my same school. Um, so he was like smart, but just a jerk. Yeah. And one day he was like, I don't know, he was an asshole. And I was like, okay, well then I guess you're going to have to do it. And he was like, what? And I'm like, well, I don't have to come here. Like, yeah. I don't need to come here. I replaced this by like, you know, teaching people math. And so, so I pretty much been self-employed ever since then. And mm -hmm. that was like, um, um, I'm not really sure what like made that feel like it was okay, but I felt like it would be okay. And so, yeah, I, I haven't really ever had like parental pressure to like mm. do a certain thing. If anything, it was like the other way around was like, if there the pressure was maybe like, I'm going to be independent. Oh, that's where I was going. It's like, why am I a lone wolf? It's like, oh, because yeah. like I can count on me. Mm. And so I counted on me for a long time. Did a lot of people let you down or anybody let you down over the years? Like not, not in some other way that would like really reinforce that. But I was like a little bit of a like social chameleon where like I could be a part of most groups, but I wasn't central to any of them, mm. if that makes sense. And mm. so like in Los Angeles, like I had a vast network of friends, but it was like, I wasn't like the core to any of them. And so um, they were all places I was welcome for sure. Yeah. But and it was, I don't know, it was like when I look back on it, it was just like so insufferable as a 20-year-old. And I, it wasn't an asshole, but it was just like, I was so self-absorbed. Like, I just wanted to be impressive. Mm. Like that I'm even telling you the story right now. It's like, why am I telling you all these details about some job I had 20 years ago? Yeah, but it's good. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's non-relevant at all. But, yeah, but, uh, but it is to your story though. I mean, that's, you know, because all that stuff happens. And then, you know, what's interesting is the transition to entrepreneurship too, right? Mm -hmm. Like that. A lot of people, especially now, are going to see that there's an opportunity, right? And, yeah. you know, maybe walk us through that because maybe you didn't know why at the time, but like, what was your experience getting into entrepreneurship? And maybe walk us through some of the stuff that you've had to learn, some of the hard lessons, some of the good, the bad, the ugly. 
Yeah, the um, you know, there's <laughs> there's so many of them. I and then one, it's funny. There's Crazy. one thing that I'm like so resistant to is giving advice. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I hate giving advice because it's like so context specific. And so it might be yeah. helpful that one time. And like, it literally said problem solver on my business card for forever. And yeah. so it's like, I love that. Oh, let me fix that for you. But it's, um, well, one, it's just like infantilizing to the person you're helping. It's like, I don't think that you're smart enough to figure this out. So let me do it for you. Um, it's not the best way to like connect to people mm. to be the problem solver. Yeah, there was definitely an, an arc in there where there was definitely a lot of interest that I pursued that so part of this, or part of the, this is a helpful thing for entrepreneurship is like, and this is not a new idea is to like make your overhead as low as possible. Yeah. Cause then you can take risks and you can make art cause like it doesn't have to work. And like, that's one of the ways to like, I'm going to probably going to steal from Seth Godin a lot in this, but Perfect. like, I mean, one that of his, guy's the best. One of his definitions of art is like, this might not work. Cause if you know that it'll work, it's not art. It's just like doing something you've already done. Oh, that's um, such a great that's such a great saying, man. And it's, it, it is, and what's tormenting about it is it's true. Yeah. And as an entrepreneur, you need it to work to some degree. Like you yeah. need to eat, you need to have shelter, right? And so there's this like base level that you need to have. And so, and there are a lot of ways to get that. And it doesn't have to be your thing that gives you that, right? Like you yeah. can have a job. Yeah. And then you can take huge risks with your art because it doesn't have to feed you. And it's a huge pressure to put on your art. And so that, um, that actually reminds me of um, like when, when May and I met, it was 10 years ago, we got married about a year later and I had gotten out of debt by like finally living below my means and making more than I owed and paid off all this credit cards and stuff. Um, And, uh, but I had taken some bets on it. On so, so that for actually that, oh now there's a reason to have told this story that first boss um probably five or six years later comes back up and he's like hey you know that plan we had for like the hypersonic airplanes that could just fly into space like i got some money we're gonna do it and it was like wow all right cool and it was the kind of thing for me that was like it was gonna it was like my mission i was gonna change the world it's like oh we can fly everywhere in like five seconds and like (laughs) you can go to space now and like it uses all this hydrogen and i'm like a renewable energy like environmental person so it was like oh man like that will actually this vehicle alone will use so much hydrogen that it'll like quadruple the hydrogen the global hydrogen market and it'll like be this thing that will make help help precipitate this move to like hydrogen-based clean energy, at least at the time. And, um, and it was total bullshit. <laughs> like he just lied. He'd maybe gotten like $50,000 when you'd need like, you know, 2 billion. And like, I was so naive. I just, he was sort of a, I actually had a sequence of like other father figures who I then watched destroy their children. That's a narrative that I have mm. where my dad did not destroy me, but I watched this guy do that to me and his son, who was my exact same age. Yeah. Um, or just lied to us. And like, I got to escape, but just with like tens of thousands of dollars of debt, but his son was like stuck in his basement for another year, like helping him on this insane <laughs> like project. Um, yeah. and then, uh, actually off that, I like landed back home, like licking my wounds. Like that was dumb. Now I have this big old hole 
that I have to dig myself out of again. And I ran into another family friend that I had, um, and they had this incredible technology of like printing uh, holograms. It's like holographic poster company and the kind of beginning of 3D movies. And so I went from like a failing aerospace startup to like sitting in like the studios at Disney headquarters, like pitching 3D like movie posters to like the head of marketing of Disney. And I'd like never even been on a studio lot. And I was just like, what is happening? And that was interesting and scrappy, but like super underfunded again. Um, And so like I was kind of doing that and tutoring again, or I don't know, just doing whatever I could to like uh, not default on my mortgage probably. Um, And so that's, that's another thing is people like, Oh, the beauty of homeownership. It's like, Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a questionable one too where um yeah uh yeah <laughs> that, that doesn't necessarily make life easier um the uh it can but it's not a it's not a given and then that company kind of failed and like the it, again it was like a dad and his daughter was my like a peer of mine same age and she was sort of stuck in this zombie company for like another like year or two after that and um and then I started, my, I had a friend, um, Ashley, who I had met through his parents and he was the same age as me. And I'd met his parents when I sold clothes when I was in college and, uh, and he and I became fast friends. Um, and he, we had actually tried, I'd applied to go to like, get, go to get an MBA. Um, and he did too. And I didn't get in and neither did he, but then he tried again the next year and got into Stanford and like went and got his MBA at Stanford. And his dad had this patent on a technology for changing eye color. Wow. Like lightning eyes. Cause like the, like I have these really light blue Mm -hmm. eyes and like I have very little melanin. And so anyways, they had done some, some studies where like if you pulse, if you shot lasers into someone's eye, you could break up that melanin and your body would transport some of away and your eyes would get lighter. And so they had raised money to like build a device that could do that on humans. Scary. And um, yeah, <laughs> super scary. Um, and I like was a consultant to that company um, to do all the safety stuff. And so it was like, I'm a systems engineer. So it's like, what are all the things that can go wrong more or less? And like, how do you mitigate them? And like, how hazardous are they? And can you reduce that hazard and all this stuff? And we actually did in-person tests in Mexico. And it was one of the most frightening things. It was like fantastic device. It was really like the team that built it, like built something awesome. And it was, you know, you could, you'd see the person's eye on a touch screen and you'd like show where the laser should go and the thing would kind of hold your eye and it would mm. do a scan. But uh, yeah, it was a very intense thing to be feel responsible for the safety of. And that, uh, that dad, because he was sort of like cheating on the mom and the son knew, or I don't know, there was, there was some like weird drama where like he more or less just fired his son, who was the CEO of the company and raised all the money and designed the t- built the team and the whole, the whole thing. And he like, the son went on vacation to go visit his family in France and like went to log into his email and was like locked out of the company he'd built. Wow. So I <laughs> had that archetype of like what entrepreneurial fathers were like. Wow. Um, so that was scary. <laughs> it was like, yeah. it was still was like, who am I supposed to like, there is no wise elder. Like what I, I don't want to keep learning out of like what not to do. Um, right. And somewhere right around in that process, I is when I met May. And so I still had some debt and she had, she didn't have debt. And she had this idea for Malins from Skin that she'd already started working on a bit. And there was a solar company that I helped start 
that was like the first crowdfunding platform for solar. And that was like when I was doing the shooting lasers in people's eyes. And I probably started consulting in aerospace again with um, a guy I also worked with on the very first job who'd gotten screwed by the same like crazy boss. Um, he and I like connected and he had a company down in San Diego and I, w I had started consulting with them and I would go down there a couple of days a week and help them with random things. So I had this like random consultancy where I was doing aerospace and I had a startup doing disaster relief housing and I was consulting wow. to this like laser thing. And then, um, yeah. And then I met these guys and we started this company solar mosaic that, um, still exists now. They do like, like loans for solar. Um, but in the beginning it was a crowdfunding platform and I was super excited cause I was like, Oh, like this, this is it. <laughs> this is going to be the thing like I solved energy. <laughs> like, I've, um, and so that was like a huge passion of mine and I was not doing my paid work to like create that product. And when we went to go form the company, um, there was like two, two founders and I was probably like the fourth person and they're like, Hey, we're like going to found the company and we're going to give you half a percent. And I was like, Oh, um, all right. Well, I'm the numbers person in your solar bank and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. So bye, but let me explain to you how equity offerings work. And like, yeah, it was, it was, um, I was like super sad because it was like, Oh cool. I figured out where I'm going to like make my dent in the universe. And then it was like, Nope. Um, and I remember feeling really angry and then like looking at May and going, Oh, you know what? Like helping these guys, I'm using your money. I'm like using your money to help these guys. Mm. And if I didn't do that, I own half of Malin's from skin because you're my wife <laughs> and yeah. I should do that because I totally believe in what you are doing. And yeah. when that thing grows um, and she was a, she was a model in her, she was a model then too. So she was like running around doing castings and stuff and like not focusing on work. And so it was like, Hey, just you do that. I'll cover the money, <laughs> like I'll cover our overhead and like you just go and like when that thing takes off, like I'll quit my aerospace stuff and like go solve, the, save the world with solar or whatever was the plan. Mm. And so, um, so what was interesting is I had paid off my debt in the interim and, um, and the fact that I'd had all that much, that debt became a huge asset because I had massive like credit capacity for like a 30 year old. And so, um, yeah, like my personal credit card, like may had cash, but it was like, you know, like cash is really valuable. Like let's just use my credit. And so we started maintenance from skin on, on that same credit card that had been like a crushing burden for me for the previous 10 years. And, um, hmm. I still use it now. Crazy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, uh, man, that was a, like a long ramble to get to here, but the, um, but I went all in on her. I was like, I totally, I know what you can do. And I know what you can do if you don't have to worry about like, if it's going to pay for itself right away or mm -hmm. like I, I could see her vision for what she wanted and like, like what our product and stuff looks like right now. We have a luxury brand and our product's beautiful and it has yeah. always looked like that. It looked like that from day one. Like there was no, Oh, well like <laughs> ramp up to the nice stuff. It was like, no, that's just what it's supposed to be. Like that's the art. What is it? Explain it to us a little bit for those that haven't seen it. Oh, it's, um, so my wife has super sensitive skin, like to the point where like she used to be a beauty model and would be used to advertise skincare products that if you put them on her, it would make her skin fall off. 
Wow. Like she would have like full arm blisters or if she used normal soap on her hands, it would like, she would like the first time she ever used normal soap, like, cause she sort of had back to the land hippie parents in Northern Minnesota. Like she went to a sleepover at a friend's and like, just, you know, washed her hands and started screaming and had like chemical burns from normal soap wow. on her. So she has super sensitive skin and um, yeah. And so she'd always just made her own skincare was the, was the gist. And so, um, and she has sort of a chef background. She'll get into it when you, when you interview her, but she's, yeah, she's, she's incredible. And so she had um, from more of a, a chef sensibility, it's like these salts and these clays and spices and plant oils like had, had created these products. And so, um, so yeah, we started off with just four products and now we, we don't, we're not big on making new things. Like we make things that, um, may wants more or less. And if there's a product that does awesome. that already, it's like, we just tell people to go buy that. <laughs> it's like, That's awesome. There, there, someone has already solved that problem. Um, That's, awesome. That's a great way to keep it though. Yeah. And so it's really sparse. Like we have, you know, we've been in business for eight years and we have seven skincare products. We have a couple of little accessories and stuff. So maybe it's 10 things, but it's like a very limited, um, like we have edited for the customer. Sometimes it's to. the best when you go to a restaurant and there's just, you know, seven items, right? right. We, have, we have done the deciding. May has done the deciding for our customers. This is what um, you get and we do this great and that's it. Exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, and they like all play together and stuff. So there's lots of mixing and matching and you get to make your own potions and stuff if you feel like it. Nice. Um, but yeah, the, uh, and so it's been, it's been interesting to watch the narrative around that because like the original plan was for me to not be a part of the company. And that ends up being a part of like the biggest sort of adversity of the story that I told myself. So when we made that call of like, okay, I'll stop ignoring my aerospace stuff. I'll just do it. I'll make money. I'll get out of debt. You go build the company. That's like in the background, probably there was a four year period where I worked on this, the project down in San Diego was for a launch site for a rocket in the kind of middle of nowhere in Virginia. And like everyone knows, like SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket, they know SpaceX at least, like the Falcon 9 original mission was to like bring stuff up to the International Space Station. And this project that I worked on was the same contract with NASA. It was like a backup plan to be able to bring stuff to the space station. And it was a total nightmare of a project. It was um, like a US company that doesn't know how to build liquid fueled rockets that bought really old 1960s technology Russian rocket motors that another U.S. company owned for some reason and then had um, some Ukrainians build like the rocket part and then float it to Virginia, stick them together, put an American flag on it and launch it into space. This was all so that we would stop using the Russian Soyuz rocket that had done that same mission for like 40 years without a failure. So it didn't make sense to do at all. And it was a, it, uh, the program went about as well as one would imagine. Mm. Um, it was a total nightmare. Um, but, and I was, so I was gone for most of May's pregnancy with our, our daughter who that happened pretty early in our marriage. And so when my daughter was born, I quit the aerospace job. And so I kind of threw off the plan because, <laughs> yeah. uh, Maylin's from skin was, uh, effectively non-existent. Like we maybe did $30,000 in revenue that year. And I quit my job that probably paid me, $200,000 or something. Mm. Um, and so I still had this solar thing. And so I, I just like, I had a friend who had a, actually a fit for service guy, Matt Moses. Oh yeah. He's and awesome. I have known each other for a long time. Um, Very cool guy. Yeah. And so he and I worked together and so he and Matt had a, a solar company in LA to kind of doing boutique. Um, 
like residential solar, you know, and so I would go climb on people's roofs and measure it and look at their utility bills and tell them how big of a system they need. And I was so, my ego was so pissed off about that for, mm. cause like I'm a rocket scientist. <laughs> like I invented the tool to finance this thing. And like, I did it on purpose cause I didn't know why it cost what it did and what was hard about building it and all that. So I was like, Oh, I'll do this and I'll, I'll know the full stack. But yeah, my ego had come in on the tail of a solar city sales guy who'd been selling cars the week before you know and the customer would be like well that guy said that it, this is how it works and i'm like well that guy's a liar <laughs> you know and the, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about and, yeah. and then i'd have to be like trust me you know yeah. which is like warning signs like do not trust someone who tells you to yeah. trust them um so yeah it was it was really challenging for me to like be a like my my story around that is like i'm a world expert at this i make almost no money doing this it's not fun what this sucks <laughs> it was like definitely the gist of kind of life at that point and mainland from skin was starting to grow by then like when my daughter was small and so just from a, a tactical standpoint it's like hey may like the work that you're doing is worth more than the work i'm doing and so i'll take talia to preschool i'll pick her up every day like i'll i was like mr mom which was great like i like my daughter like was the biggest probably healing for me in like all of my life because yeah, like all the perfectionism and wanting to make be impressive. And that was just like me not liking me. Like it's pretty, it's pretty simple. Um, you know, how to, it's the simplest thing. Yeah. How to undo that. Um, you know, and, and Talia was like clear evidence that like, I did not need to earn love. Mm. Like she loved me in spite of me, <laughs> you know, unconditionally, like definitely unconditionally. And like, you know, as they, as they get older, they can become, can become more conditional, <laughs> but, but definitely yeah. when they're like new, it's like, wow, like I pretty much the barrier to like you loving me this much was really low. Um, and so, so like, I really loved that. But the story I was telling myself was that I was not living up to my potential that I was, I actually had a friend who said when I was a tutor, he introduced me to someone and he was like, this is Robert and he's wasting his brain. And like those words haunted me for a long time. And um, wow. yeah, so I was like, you know, we're, so I was doing whatever, but not saving the world. And, and like the thing that I really want to do is ultra complicated, like the crowdfunded solar financing thing is like so complicated. It's like not worth doing. Um, but I didn't really realize that at the time. And so I was really dark. I was like really angry a lot. And a lot of that anger would come out at May because she was like the only person that was like close enough. It's like a perverse thing. Like a stranger could punch me in the face and I wouldn't get mad. Um, but it's only with the people that are close to me that I like feel like they should know better <laughs> or they should, if they really understood me, like this wouldn't so be true. happening. So and true. so, um, yeah, all my anger at like the whole planet would just like come out at her, which was not good for lots of reasons. And by this point, like probably our company had moved out of our house. We hired our first people, like the brand was doing well. And so like, you know, and May is the figurehead of the company. And so there'd be, you know, draw for her to travel and like go meet our accounts and stuff. And like, she was very happy to go do that <laughs> and not be around me, which, um, yeah, which was also challenging. Um, How's that been now for you guys working together and not being able to leave? Well, this is like, um, this is ancient history. 
<laughs> this was like long, this is right five five or six years ago that that like dynamic was happening mm-hmm. and um yeah and I, I was like very dark and and I was doing a lot of um like we were doing couples therapy but that felt like pretty much therapy on me and there was yeah there was a lot of like physical practices that were coming in place and that were helpful and and then actually five years ago was the first time that the alt mba happened and man i had gone to this like weekend event that seth godin hosted like in early march or something of 2015 and and he has this chart it's like another starts at zero zero there's like some vertical axis that's like a measure of goodness and then normally the horizontal axis is time on a chart like or a lot of time that's like what i'm used to and um but this is uh the chart on the axis here is tactics. So it's like the way that you're doing something. And, um, and so there's like some local peak where you're at and you could stay there forever if you wanted to, but like, if you want to get here, you have to change and the act of change makes you not good at the new thing. Mm. And so there's a dip. Yeah. So you go from being good to becoming like an amateur at your new thing until you get better at it. And like, um, and he put that chart up on the thing and I just like felt so uncomfortable in my body. I was like, Oh my God, that's true. Like a capital T mm. and like, but what if you're at like here, <laughs> what if you're at like zero uh, as a person and you need to like start making things better. And um, yeah, I just felt like, so not overwhelmed, but like, yeah. Anyways, in this front of this group of like 80 people, I just sort of like raised my hand and started crying and was like, well, what are we supposed to do <laughs> with that? And that, I don't think I'd ever done anything like that. And it was funny because a bunch of people came up to me after and was like, wow, that was like, thank you so much. That was like really amazing. And I was like, I did not do that for you. I promise. Like that was not, I did not want that to happen. Um, and a couple months later, um, his sort of head of projects like emailed me and was like, hey, Seth's going to do this thing. And, and we wondered if you wanted to coach. And like the amount of imposter syndrome in me being asked that like i'd read his blog i'd read every book he'd probably written he tells you not to wait to get picked and here i am like at the darkest least accomplished feeling part of my life being picked by like him to coach people and it was just like i don't know that doesn't make sense but like yes of course i'm like gonna get to work with you and so um we were doing um one of the no one had ever done it before so like no one had ever coached before. And so when we were training for what coaching would be like, we did a week's worth of the classwork and then Seth and um, the, the or first provost would like give feedback to us, which is the coach's job in the Alt MBA. Um, and the project I got to do was like on constraints and leverage on a project you're working on. And it was like right in my wheelhouse. I was like, oh man, the constraints on my crowdfunded solar financing thing are like infinite. The point was like, what happens if you can blow one of those constraints out of the water by like getting financing or people or whatever. And my world just makes it worse. Mm. If you try to make it bigger, more money or whatever. And Seth, which had nothing to do with him, but he asked me, is it worth it? And like, I read that sentence and like everywhere in my body was just like, no. And what I got to realize then is I wasn't doing that on purpose and I'd never been giving myself credit for that choice because what I was doing instead is what I wanted to do like I wanted to be with my daughter I wanted to support my wife and like the company as she was growing and because I wasn't saving the world I wasn't giving myself credit for having made those decisions and so I don't know there was something about that question that like reframed my whole perspective on who I was and mm. 
the choices that I, the life I was leaving. And, um, and also that like, I got flashback. It's like, Oh, and like, I probably help more people with our skincare products than when I put solar on their house. Mm-hmm. Like I see the effect it has on people. Like I get to read the emails, like it's unbelievable <laughs> the, the impact that this work has on people. And so like, why, why am I feeling like that's beneath me? Like that's the best work I could ever do. And I've been all in for me at Maylands from skin ever since. And um, yeah, it's, I've, I feel like so sort of grateful and blessed to like have, have had a thing to pivot into like mm. from that point, that was like such a powerful um, platform for, for growth for myself, but also for our team and our, clients and all that stuff and so and it's definitely been challenging like that that year was super dark and gnarly for me and i um like it took a lot of it took a lot of um reframing of things Mm. because correctly she had also become clear that she did not want to be in a relationship with me Mm. and that was like a really interesting to um thing to like receive from her especially someone who's like i'm not worthy of love like this doesn't make sense that you would even like me to begin with and probably like the day i I think i had like some clarity around like i think maybe i maybe i maybe i am just worthy of love because i am Mm. and then like the next day she was like i don't think i can be your wife anymore and i was like huh well you're right i think what we need to do next is I, i think i disagree with what we should do because what I know, I know a secret is that like I sort of miraculously changed like yesterday mm. and I recognize that you should not trust that because it, <laughs> it probably just feels like a front or an act, but like, no, that like that anger is gone. Mm. Cause like, yeah, if she had said that to me two days earlier, I would have like exploded. How is and everything? So, how's everything now? How, how's everything? It's like, evolved? It's um, fantastic. You know, like there's like our, our relationship ebbs and flows and there's like always something to be working on. But it's, um, yeah, it's just like a, the funny thing about um, being married is people feel like it's something that happens and then it's just like, oh, well now we're married. And it's like, no, it's a practice. And like, actually one of the, th- I sort of think free, freeing things is like once you're married, the idea of not choose, choosing to be not married is like so taboo that it's not one of the options anymore. And that breeds resentment, feeling trapped, all these things yeah. is like, I'm not choosing this anymore. And so um, that was one of the interesting things. Actually that happened for both of us in the, the dynamic that unfolded there for probably like, it was probably nine months after that where it was still pretty dicey. It's very touch and go where, um, you know, she got to exercise like not choosing me. <clears throat> and then, and me uh, still being me mm. in in response to that and like not, and being like, well, my stance is soft and warm. Like I had chosen that. It's like, I love May. I do not have to be with her to love her. Um, but I am not, she is not going to receive my like sharp anger anymore. Even if I have it, even if she does something that's like horrible and painful to me, like, the stance that I'm going to hold for her is soft and warm mm. and I will do something else with my anger. Cause it's, I'm not, it's not for her. Um, and then I got to do the same kind of to her where it was just like, Hey, like there is, what are the details don't really matter, but it's like, there's a bunch of things that are really painful to me that are happening. And like, 
I need your help. I would like to not have this experience anymore. And I would like you to help protect me from these experiences. And if you won't, I'm going to leave. Cause like, (laughs) it's not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be friends with someone who like, let their friends hurt me or whatever the, the, the narrative was. So it was, um, it was, I'm great. Like <laughs> being mutual is like, was probably helpful for us to both be actively choosing each other. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, we're pretty intentional with like why we do things and like what the choices we're making in our life. And like a lot of that practice of the last five years has been just like, what's this for? <laughs> what's this for? It's like, it's yeah. my favorite question. It's, it's great to know, like, is it all worth it? Like you said, like, you know, like, right. Cause if it, like, it's going to be hard. Yeah. Like whatever it is, like some birthing, some new thing into the world, it's going to be challenging. And so, um, yeah, actually like the reframe of that question that Seth asked me is cause, cause that one's like not a great question. Cause it's a yes or no. And if you ask that question to someone at the wrong time, like they might actually give the answer they didn't mean because of the dip, right? Because if you ask someone, is it worth it when it's in the hardest part, their yeah. react, their reflection is just going to be, no, this sucks, right? And that's what happened with me. Um, and so like a reframing of that question is what will make it worth it? Right. And I really like asking that question at the beginning of things because then when it gets hard, you can remember it. Yeah. And you don't have to have like the inner resources at that moment to go, oh, what would like the best version of me think? Yeah. You know, cause like I'm not right now <laughs> I'm, I'm upset or I'm tired or, um, and so, yeah, the, um, yeah. So like, as our company has grown or it's like, you know, why are we like, what are, why are we doing any of these things? These are all optional. Yeah. Um, or, or like we get to have the freedom to like have choices be optional or, or to know it's like, oh, I just want that. Yeah. Like that can be enough of a reason, but it's like helps you to be clear <laughs> that's why you're choosing it and not just like, Oh, cause it'll make me a better person or whatever. Like some, some narrative that will add on top of it. Um, Awesome, man. Yeah. (laughs) Where can we check it all out? Where, if everybody wants to find your products and learn more about you, where's the best place to check it out? Maylindstrom.com is the best place to find our products. And that's May like the month, M-A-Y and May's last name, L-I-N-D-S-T-R-O-M.com is our website. And, my Instagram is Robbie Met, which with Robbie with a Y M E T. It's mostly pictures of me and my kids, <laughs> but that'll probably change at some point. Um, yeah, and then May's. That's why I'm blanking on what May's Instagram is. It's probably she's got, May she's got a good skin. following. She's got a very engaged Instagram. Yep, it's very good. I would highly suggest you guys check out Rob and May. They both got some good stuff happening. Yeah, if you have any questions about how to take care of your skin, can you yeah. email care at maylinstrom.com and they'll take great care of you. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, well, it's important. It's important. And so one question just to wrap it up, bro. We're running out of time here. Yeah. Out of all, for the takeaway for everybody, as I ask everyone, what is one lesson that adversity has taught you? Usually that with, the, with a different frame of mind, adversity is an opportunity. So when you feel adversity look for what part of it's an opportunity. Love it. Yeah. Because essentially it is, it's just how you look at it. Yeah. yeah. And looking at it differently is really hard. It is. But that's the opportunity. That's, that's the, the challenge and the opportunity in universities. How can I look at this differently? Love it, man. So that it's for me. Awesome, brother. Well, I really appreciate it, dude. I'll, um, we're going to have all the information 
for your guys' company in the show notes to check it out. And I appreciate your story, man. I, I love hearing it. And, and it's great to see the transition and, you know, how somebody, you know, cause we get so stuck in our jobs or what we do and we think that's going to be the thing forever. And especially now, I think a lot of people are going to be reinventing themselves. So yeah. You know, and deciding on a different direction. So thanks so much for sharing that brother. Thank you, man. Thanks for holding the space. Oh, absolutely, man. I love doing this. This is, this is, this is my, this is my thing. This, this feels, feeds my soul. Well, good. That, in hindsight, that feels like quite the ramble. So oh, my that's apologies. All right, that's all right. <laughs> Rob Metcalf, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Lance. Thanks, everybody. Hope you guys have a beautiful day. Hit that subscribe button on Apple if you haven't already. And if you can, leave us a review, share it in a story, whatever you can do to send this thing out to the world. Love you guys. We'll catch you next time.